Like Ryan said, we're starting a a new sermon series today, and we're going to be talking a little bit about, um, at the beginning, why we're doing this series. So we do what's called expository preaching here at Crosspoint Community Church, and you may have heard that word a lot, you may have never heard it before in your life, but it's a word that we use a lot here, Um, so I want to take a second just to define what we mean by that in terms of how we approach teaching here at Crosspoint. The word expository means something intended to explain or describe something. So what that means for us is that we feel like our job as pastors um, is to uphold and proclaim God's truth first and foremost. Um, Paul says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, that one of the church's jobs is to proclaim and uphold um, and make known the truth of God's word. And so our job is not to come up here as pastors with a bunch of ideas or good advice that we think is some sort of professional counselor type role, but it's simply to explain and describe what God has already said through his word. And what that means is that God's word should be the driving force of our, of our sermons, of what we're teaching, not us coming up with some good ideas to share and then sprinkling in some scripture passages to go along with those thoughts. And as we um, talk about that, I want to share a quick quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book about preaching, encouraging other pastors who are preaching. Here's what he said. As you start preparing your sermon, you must begin with the exposition of your passage. You do not start with a thought, even though it be a right thought, a good thought. You do not start with that and then work out an address on that. You must not do that because if you do, you will find that you will be tending to say the same thing each time. You'll be repeating yourself endlessly. If there were no other argument for expository preaching than this, to me, would be sufficient in itself. It will save you from repetition, and that will be a good thing for your people as well as yourself. Um, so one of the reasons I want to take a minute to define that is that we are doing a little bit different approach. So historically what we've done at Crosspoint, you know, 99% of the time is we take a book of the Bible and we slowly and methodically work through that book. And we like that approach a lot because it helps us to keep the text central. Um, it forces us to cover topics we may not want to avoid because it's like, what am I preaching on this Sunday? It's like, whatever that says. And if it says that, I guess we're preaching on that, right? That's all there is to it. Um, And it helps us learn how to study Scripture because as you guys study your Scriptures or your Bible at home, um, likely what you're doing is is reading through a book. And so as we're studying and preaching, we're kind of showing you, hey, here's how we got to where we got with understanding of these passages. Um, But we're going to change it up a little and do more of a broad approach. And so we're going to look at a series of stories throughout Scripture um, in this series. And so three three reasons we want to do that, three benefits we see to that. One, it helps us cover more ground, right? Um, We spent um, 13 weeks um, in in the passage when we did our Genesis series. We spent 13 weeks on the passage I'm going to cover today. Um, if that gives you any uh, idea of how much more ground we're going to be able to cover. Um, number two, it's going to help us build Bible literacy. A lot of these stories we're going to cover are just, they are just so foundational to the Christian faith. And they're kind of like kind of like stories of our own family, right? Our spiritual family. These are the stories of who we are and where we came from. And having that Bible literacy of what these stories are, where, where and when they take place in Scripture. Um, and then thirdly, seeing patterns and themes. So you're going to see the same themes and patterns of God work throughout the big picture across Scripture as we move through this series. So 
Um, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our passage today, which is going to cover creation, the fall, and the flood. Um, and so the book of Genesis, we did a series on it, like I said, a few years ago, but especially these first three chapters are just so foundational to our worldview and understanding as Christians. Um, 99% of the doctrines, the, the beliefs, the tenets of our faith as Christians are found and represented here in these first three chapters of Genesis. It just lays the foundation for everything else we believe that we see reaffirmed throughout Scripture. Um, so let's just make a couple observations, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a lot of the text. If you want to open up to Genesis 1, um, I'm going to be reading a lot from the Scriptures this morning as we try to cover this. So the first thing we see is the idea that God made everything from nothing. So we believe as Christians that God is eternal, that there was never a time that God did not exist. In fact, we believe that God, in a sense, created time, right? So that before there was time, there was a time that God um, existed and nothing else did. And there was never a time, even before time was created, that God did not exist. He is eternal. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we are not. Um, but we also believe that Matter, everything that's been created, is temporal. That everything that we see, we can see, touch, those are all things that God created. Everything in the universe, that matter in the universe is not eternal, but God is. Um, and when we look at the account of Genesis and how God created everything, how all that worked, there's a, there's a million rabbit trails we could chase in terms of the timeline of how that actually happened, right? Because you've got lots of different views on the first few chapters of Genesis. You've got some people like maybe on this side that would say they're young earth, that they believe the Bible, or that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days and the earth is about 10,000 years old. Then over here, man, you've got some people who like believe God created humans even through a process of evolution like you would see in some um, academic circles, right? And, and then you've got lots of things in between, right? Um, but we're not going to dive deep in any of those views. Um, but what we should all agree on and what is unmistakably clear is that God made everything from nothing. That nothing existed and God spoke everything that does exist that we see and touch into existence. And that like an artist or an engineer, he gave structure, order, beauty, and purpose to our world. That Things are not here by accident or incidentally, as other worldviews or ancient accounts would say, but that God had meaning and purpose and design behind everything that he created. And number two, that God made man in his own image. So God made everything from nothing, and then as a kind of a crown jewel of this creation, God made man in his own image. Genesis 1.26 says it this way, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we're going to camp out here for a little while on this idea that man is made in God's image. And three things that that means. Number one, it means that we are similar to God. Right? There are things about us as people that share similarities with God that no other created being shares. Now, that probably is not reference to some sort of physical appearance, right? It's not to say that 
that we're made in God's image in the sense that he has two arms and two eggs like we do. Um, but it is in the sense of that we have the ability to reason, to think, to control, right, to create, that we've got a lot of things that are characteristics of God implanted in us, given to us, that are not given to anything else that walks on this earth. And one of those things is the, the desire, this deep desire for community. Think about this, that before God created anything, he existed not as just simply one solitary, isolated individual, but he existed in community as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so our desire and longing for community and oneness with others is there because we share that attribute with God, because we were made in his likeness, and he is community, and we were built for the same thing, to commune with each other and to commune with God. Genesis 2.18 says it this way, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So think about that. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, before anything bad or evil had happened, God looked on what he had created in man as his crown jewel, Adam, the one man, and said, you know what, this is not good. And that stands in contrast if you read the book of Genesis, like the creation account, he made this and it was good. He made this and it was good. He made man and it was good. And then there's this kind of break in the story and God says, it's actually not good that man should be alone. Even before the fall, that solitary individual man without a companion, God said was not good because it wasn't befitting of what man needed as one made in his image. So we are similar to God. And then number two, we have dominion. Unlike any of the other animals, we have a responsibility not just to represent God on the earth, but to take charge and responsibility over the earth. Genesis 1.26, second part of the verse says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what does it mean for man to have a sense of dominion and responsibility? One of the first places my mind goes is to Charles Goodnight. Anybody raise your hand? Charles Goodnight? Anybody know who that is? Yeah, if you grew up in the, the Panhandle area, you know who that is. He's kind of like a legend out there. Um, Charles Goodnight was this early rancher, settler um, in the Panhandle region of Texas. And if you're ever driving through there on your way to Colorado, because most of you would not go to the Panhandle to stay. You're just passing through, right? So if you're ever driving through there, right outside of the town called Claude, yes, there's a town called Claude, like a clod of dirt, right? Claude, Texas, um, his house is there, his original house that he lived in. And if you go there, it's a museum now, you can learn all about him, really interesting guy. But one of the things he's really famous for, he and his wife, is for saving the American bison. Um, most people think that without Charles Goodnight and his wife, there would be no, what we think of as buffalo, right? The American bison would have been completely wiped out. They were being Overhunted, you guys know about that probably. Um, but what you may not know is that he and his wife, right there in what is now Claude, Texas, heard them in the Paladura Canyon um, because their moms and dads had been killed and heard the orphan calves just like bawling out there. Um, and so his wife was like, We got to do something about this. So they went and gathered some, created a herd, probably is the thing that preserved the species. And that lineage of that herd now lives in Caprock Canyon State Park. Um, but it's just a cool example of. Some people who just were exercising their dominion over the world that God had created. They saw 
a problem. Like this species that we love and it is good. And I'm not, I don't know that he was a Christian or his wife and spiritually motivated. I don't know any of that. But what I do know is that they saw that was a problem and they took the responsibility upon themselves to do something about it, to manage and oversee the world we live on. No other species does that, right? You guys, I have a cousin who's a wildlife biologist. He talks about how mountain lions will often go out and kill animals and just leave the carcass and walk away just to keep their skills sharp and maybe just for fun. No one faults them for that, right? Like no one says, those mountain lions shouldn't do that, right? That's, that's wrong. They should stop that practice. That's disrespectful. But we hold ourselves to a higher standard, right? We look at the, the almost extinction of the bison and go, we shouldn't have done that, right? Like we shouldn't have just wiped them out like they were this limitless resource. So we have this sense, believers and unbelievers, that we are to steward and protect and oversee God's creation in a way that we do not apply that standard to other beings on the earth. We are to rule and to represent God here. We are also commanded to fill the earth as part of our dominion to, to take over the world, in a sense, as human beings. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. So we could say it this way, that this world is a gift to us, that man was made for the world, and the world was made for man as God's crown jewel of creation, much like a father might build a treehouse for his kids to have a place that they can own and manage and have dominion over, God built the world for us, that we as human beings are different. We are special among his creation. So we're similar to God. We have dominion. And number three, we have instructions. That although God has given us dominion, that dominion is not without limits. That ultimately, we answer to him as a higher authority. And that even before the fall, three commands are given to man. One, to work. God commanded Adam to, to work in the garden to tend the ground. God commanded Adam to rule. Let him name all the animals. And God commanded Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. So there are commands given to us, even in our dominion, that we are to operate within God's rule and design. And I said that Genesis is, is foundational to a Christian worldview. And it gives us the answers to a lot of the lies that we see in our culture. There are those in our culture who would have us believe that we need to liberate ourselves from this idea that a man should be with a woman and not another man, or that a man has to be a man and can't be some other thing that he creates in his own mind that he decides that he is. It's not the only place we see this, but one of the foundational places we see that our biblical worldview should be shaped by the idea in Genesis is that God has made man and woman in his likeness, and he has made them for specific roles and specific functions and to function together as man and wife. So that's, that's the idea of creation, right? That, that God made everything and then he made man in his own image. Now let's look at what happened, right? Everything was good up until then. I think I've got in my notes right here that that song, Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie, you know? That God made all this thing, everything was good, and Adam and Eve are just walking around singing, everything is awesome, you know? Just like, this is great, right? But then everything got not awesome really quickly. We see this in the fall. Or as Milton calls it, paradise lost. 
So I'm going to read this portion of Scripture, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and just make a few comments as we move through it. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice how the serpent is making Eve resent the authority of God, calling into question whether or not man should have ultimate dominion and not answer to a higher power. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Here the serpent is suggesting that God is not trustworthy. That God is lying to you. God is withholding from you. He does not have your best interest at mind. God is being selfish. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So for the first time, Adam and Eve knew what it was like to feel guilt and shame and a desire to hide themselves from God. The next thing we know, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he calls out to them, asking them where they are. And they say they are hiding. In verse 11, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And this is when the great tradition of blame shifting begins right here. How many of you guys are, know someone, not you of course, but maybe you know someone who's a blame shifter, right? I got a funny story. I um, had, had a buddy and his wife, his name was Ginger. Um, I guess she was really bad at this. And one day he kind of confronted her on it and in a loving, gentle way just said, Ginger, look, babe, like, you, it's okay to be wrong sometimes. I feel like anytime you're like in the wrong or have made an error. You just want to kind of blame it on someone else and, and push it aside. And like it's, we're, we're, you know, none of us are perfect. It's okay to make mistakes. You need to just embrace that. It's okay to be wrong. And apparently, she really took that to heart. She slept on it. Um, she came to him the next day and said, you know, I've, I've been thinking about what you said about my tendency to blame shift and trying to figure out why I do that. And I, I thought back on my childhood and I've decided like I get that from my mom. So she, she gets her blame shifting from her mom. And the good news is we can all claim that excuse, right? Because what we're going to see here is we come from a long line of blame shifters. So if that's something you struggle with, hey, it's not your fault. Um, it was just passed down to you. So look at this. The man said, Genesis 3.12, The woman who you gave to be with me, not only is it the woman's fault, but it's kind of your fault because you're the one that gave her to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. She's blame shifting too, and I ate. But I want us to notice some things about this passage. Again, this is, in, this is intended not just to be a cool story, but a, a foundation for how we see the world and how we make sense of it. Um, notice who God comes to. God comes not to the one who took the fruit first and initiated this sequence of events, but God comes to Adam. You would expect him to come to Eve first. 
that he goes to Adam. Why is that? Well, if you look closely at the sequence of events, what you'll see is that Eve was not there when, Adam, when God gave Adam instructions about what to eat and not eat. Eve had not been in the picture yet. And so the assumption there is God was relying on Adam to pass that information to Eve that they may walk in. And it also says that Adam was standing right there when the snake came up and started tempting her. And God, Adam had named that snake, right? Like he had clearly been given dominion over this. So what should have happened was, what the heck, a talking snake. Done, right? Should have been over right then. But instead, Adam abdicates his responsibility to lead and just kind of stands back and watches just to see what would happen. That Adam is sort of convicted here in the story of being passive and not leading his family the way he should have in that situation and letting Eve take the reins, right? So even though Eve was the one that took the apple, Adam is the one that's held responsible. And so then come this line of curses in our scripture of here are going to be the results of that mistake. And God starts with a snake. says you're going to be on your belly the rest of your life, which is pretty awful, right? I don't know if you guys have ever tried to like move on the ground without your arms and legs. It's, it's pretty rough. And I know we're not built like snakes, right? We're not meant for that, but I mean, that's just a pretty bad curse that you're just going to have to, everyone else is going to have appendages, right? But you're just going to be a line and you're just going to have to slither and I got to think that God, like, made the millipede just to rub it in, you know? Like, can you imagine the snake slithers by? Oh, you got a thousand legs. I can't have two or four? Come on. But then Adam, or sorry, then God moves on to the woman, to Eve. And he basically gives her two things that are going to, she's going to have to live with now because of this thing that she's done. And the first is pain and childbirth, which is such a, interesting thing, right, that one of the things that made woman unique from man, maybe the main thing, right, is the ability to bear and give birth to children. So this thing that she was uniquely made and crafted for now is going to come with great pain and suffering. So this, this, was, this was a big deal for him to say, look, the thing I've made you for, you're still going to be able to do it, but it's going to be at great cost. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be a pleasant thing for you anymore. And then secondly, this idea of resentment over her husband's authority. Scriptures say that she will want to rule over him, that she will kind of resent his leadership and his position. And I want you to notice a few things. Again, foundational Christian beliefs about why the world is the way it is. This idea that Eve would live in submission to Adam, that there would be deference in this relationship of equals was pre-fall, right? This is not a result of the fall, the idea that man would, uh, that a woman would submit to her husband and live in that way. That was from the beginning, but that God was going to, as part of the curse, strain that relationship, that the woman would start to resent that she has that authority. And I get to say equals, just like just like Jesus as the Son submits to God the Father, both are equally God, but there is a deference in that relationship. A lot of scholars think that that was kind of the model for which God made man and woman, husband and wife. But she's going to resent that relationship and make it difficult. And much like childbirth, that's still a good thing, but it's going to come um, with some pain and with some heartache. So when I was preparing this, 
I texted three ladies in our church who I know to be faithful moms and wives and just said, man, what are, what are some quotes about this I could share about how it can be fulfilling and a good thing for a woman to embrace her role um, in that relational context and seek after it. And one of the quotes, quotes that came back um, was a quote by uh, Rebecca Merkel from Eve in Exile, and it says this, Design matters. The, the intent of the designer matters. And we women as God's creatures are designed by him to fulfill a particular role. Adam was not brought into the picture to be her sidekick. And she was not brought into the picture to live an independent life, fulfilling her own dreams, while Adam did his thing separately. That God has a design and an intent with the way he structured marriage. And then our very own Jamie Lee Ganey shared um, a quote from one of her blogs that says this, My nature is fierce and independent. I have an opinion about almost everything, and submission does not come naturally for me. But I can tell you that when I more fully embrace God's sanctification of my own heart, through understanding of my role as a biblical wife, joy is found there, peace is found there, purpose and abounding fruitfulness is found there. So friends, this is, this is why we teach these things, this way of living, this marriage relational dynamic, what that should look like. And I, I would challenge you that if, that if that sounds suppressive to you or if that sounds like one having deference to the other sounds like a bad thing, find someone who's really living that out and ask them if it's a bad thing. I think what you're going to find is that, it, like Jamie said, it leads to a lot of fruit and a lot of joy and a lot of goodness and fulfillment when we are functioning in the way God designed us to. And then for men, God, for man rather, mankind, Adam hands, or God hands down this consequence to Adam. Number one, your labor will be painful. So there's some irony here in this, right, that the very thing God had commanded man to do, to work the grounds, to keep it, to, to maintain the garden, to look after it. He failed miserably at that, right? When he stood there idly while his wife took, of the one, took fruit of the one tree that they were commanded not to eat. And now because of that, the ground itself is going to work against you. Right? Remember, work is, is pre-fall, right? Adam was working before the fall. And that's kind of sometimes hard for us to imagine because sometimes our idea of the good life is not working, right? But you guys as men, you know what it's like to, and women too, right, to how you feel after a good day of hard work. Imagine working out in the yard or doing something, some kind of physical labor, and then at the end of the day, you've got some work to show for it. You've, and I'm talking about like July, okay? That's, July in Texas, that's part of the fall, okay? So think about like a nice cool day in November um, where there's a nice breeze, right? Um, you've, you've broken a little bit of a sweat, but you're not like miserable. At the end of the day, you're a little bit sore, but it's like a good sore, you know? That's the kind of thing that was happening um, but then because of the fall, it got really hot and it got really thorny. Um, and there's an irony in that. And then we share also, secondly, in, in Eve's curse, that this relational dynamic between man and woman that is now strained, that, that marriage now is a difficult thing um, because of sin entering into the picture. And then thirdly, and most importantly, and this applies for everyone, right, even though it was something God gave specifically to man, is death. God said, 
from the dust you were made, and now to the dust you shall return. It's where we get the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Man was made from the earth and will now return to it through death because of the fall. So we see that this world we live in from a Christian perspective, what Genesis tells us, is originally beautiful and good, but now broken. Think for a minute about just a very blissful time in your life. Maybe it's the first time you held a child or a moment of enjoying just the sweet camaraderie and companionship of a, a spouse or a, a parent or a sibling. Or maybe it's the brightness in a child's face in a moment of just innocent enjoyment and pleasure. Or maybe being in a hammock watching the sunset in the mountains with pine trees or aspens or whatever. Just think about some times in your life when you just felt like, man, this is good. Yes. When everything in you just goes, yes. We embrace that because that's what it was supposed to be. That's what we were made for. That's what the earth was made for, for a place to man to dwell and enjoy the gifts God has given us. That as Christians, we are not stoics who try to remove ourselves completely from the pleasures of the world, but we embrace them as God's gift to us. But we are living in a reality where we have screwed it up and things are not as they're supposed to be. And we long for that. So let's move on from there to the flood. Let's look at Genesis chapter 6. And this is what happens. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and beheld it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, things had gone from bad to worse. After that, the first two siblings, Cain and Abel, one of them kills the other one, and then things just get more evil and worse as time progresses, that, that you see that this curse that God put upon man for his disobedience is just spreading and filling the earth in a very bad way. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So what does the, the flood teach us? By the way, most um, Ancient cultures have some sort of flood account. The scriptures are just one of those accounts, but it paints it in a very different light than other accounts. One of the things that it teaches us is that we have inherited a sinful nature, right? It just teaches us that the sin and rebellion of Adam has come down and affected everyone to the nth degree. The second thing we learn is that one man's righteousness saved all of mankind. So what does God do? He looks upon the earth, but... He's about to destroy everyone and everything, but then he finds one man, Noah. And because there was one man, in contrast to everyone else who was righteous, humanity is saved. So we see Noah as kind of a, a type, right, or a foreshadow of Jesus, right? That though everyone had screwed it up and we were all guilty of it, there was one man who was righteous that was able to save it for everyone. And that's what Jesus would come to do. And that's, that's the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, right? The big picture that Scripture is telling is simply this. It's four parts. It's creation. God created everything, and it was amazing. It was great. Everything was awesome. And then there was a fall. That man came in and messed it up. We took the good thing God had given us and caused it to be corrupt and broken and out of step with what was intended. And then third, there's redemption. That God in his mercy looked upon the mess that man had made 
and God redeemed it. And how did God do that? Well, ultimately, in this instance, as a, as a small view of it through Noah, but Noah was just a foreshadow of the way God would ultimately do it, which was to send his son Jesus to become one of us, to enter into the wreckage so that man might fix the problem that man had caused. God became man in the person of Jesus, died on the cross to absorb the penalty of our sins and redeem us free us from this mess that we had made, and then restoration that God is one day going to set everything back right like it's supposed to be. We see in Romans chapter 5, we're not going to read the, the text this morning, but it's just this beautiful picture of how through, through one man, everything was ruined. Through Adam's one decision, Adam's one act of disobedience, death came to all. But that God would send a second Adam, the person of Jesus, and through this one man's one act of obedience, life and forgiveness would be brought to many. Someone should write a song about that. It's just an amazing story there. Now, I want to share just a couple quotes as we wrap up. This is from John Eldridge, and he talks about this idea that this, this biblical meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption at great cost to someone, and restoration, that that's that's the story, the same storyline that tugs at all of our hearts. Any great story you can think of that makes you go, yes, that's a great story, it follows that same plot. Listen to what he says about that. All the great stories pretty much follow the same storyline. Things were once good, then something awful happened, and now a great battle must be fought or a journey taken. At just the right moment, a hero comes and sets things right, and life is found again. Every story shares the same essential structure because every story we tell borrows its power from a larger story, a story woven into the fabric of our being. I've been reading um, Chronicles of Narnia to our kids and some great stories. I mean, I don't know if you guys ever made it through the whole series, but in the very last book, um, there's a scene in which like the this land of Narnia that they live in, right? All these creatures and people is restored. Like all the evil is removed and it's, it's given its, its rebirth and it's made even better than it was before, which is what we look forward to as Christians. And I want you to listen to what, as they're, so as they're exploring it, they're, just, they're running into things and seeing things. They're just great and glorious, but then it looks a little bit familiar. And then they begin to realize that like, that's the same thing we saw before Everything was recreated, but it's just, it's just better, right? And as they're experiencing this and learning what's going on, I want you to listen to what the unicorn says. Something you don't hear a lot from the pulpit, right? I want you to listen to what the unicorn says. He sees that, something he recognizes, and he says, This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Friends, I think that's what we will experience in the new heavens and new earth. That we'll look back on the moments of bliss and go, that's why we enjoy that so much. That's why that was so sweet and so good and resonated with our souls because it was what we were made for. But we were living in its brokenness. But as Christians, we look forward to the day that that will be restored and we will experience life the way it was intended to be, without sin, with the fall reversed because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray.
God, I thank you so much for Genesis, for the story we get to live in, this just this beautiful description of why life is the way that it is and how we can make sense of it. And God, that we are not left to solve an impossible problem that we could never fix, but that you and your mercy sent Jesus to undo the wreckage we had caused for our sin. God, would you help us to embrace that and walk in it this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.